to John chapter 15. We continue in our series. Uh, we've been looking at this, this uh, um, topic of encountering Jesus or in having these encounters with Jesus. And as we look through the, the book of John, we certainly see a number of those encounters that, that take place. And, and it's kind of a, amazing to me as we go through this just to see um, that happened throughout the book of John. John's probably one of my favorite Gospels. Um, uh, certainly, um, uh, I think a, an incredible, incredible Gospel. And I, I think about it, and I think about what we kind of started out with today. I just, you know, Jesus really never ceases to amaze me. I've talked about, we, we mentioned that as we were beginning, but I, you know, I, I think about the things that he does and the things that he says and the things that that uh, are, are uh, you know, just right out there in front of us. I mean, does he amaze you? Does Jesus amaze you? Um, he just never ceases to amaze me. Um, and I look at this here and I see, as I read each and every week in, in the Gospel of John, or as I read anywhere in the Bible, it's just that he is never satisfied with the status quo. That, that amazes me. Um, never status, satisfied with the status quo. He's... And, and that always gets him into trouble. Did you notice that? It always gets him in trouble when he's not, um, he's not uh, in with or satisfied with the status quo. And, and, but you watch him. You watch him with religious leaders. You watch him with people. You watch him with um, uh, anyone. And he just has this way of just kind of taking things and just turning them right upside down. Um, you see him on the mountainside, and, and he says some strange things like this. He says, well, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. Or he'll say something strange, or, or he'll do something strange, like walk into a room that is, that is full of disciples. As, and he does so as the, as the one who is there to save the world. And, and all of a sudden, he takes off his outer garment, and he puts on a towel, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. I mean, anything that... that, that that, that turns stuff upside down. And I think basically in John chapter 15, that's exactly what he does here, is that he just begins to just turn stuff upside down. And now it might not strike you and I uh, uh, that way at first, I guess. Um, this is such a simple statement in this passage here, this last of the I am's. He simply says in John chapter 15, he says, I and the true vine. I am the true vine. Now that may not seem so strange for us in Western culture, but they were used to kind of a different image there. In fact, if you look at the in the Psalms, back in Psalm chapter 80, if you'll in that you'll see just a, that this isn't a, a new image at all, that vine imagery. Uh, Israel was used to this kind of language, I think, about about vineyards. And so, for example, in Psalm chapter 80, and you start with verse number 8, um, just, just take in some of what this psalm says. And it's up there on the screen, and, and uh, maybe you want to look at that in your own Bibles. But this image here of the vine, he says in, in Psalm chapter um, eight, psalm, num, psalm 80, verse, verse 8, he says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It, was, it sent out its boughs to the sea, its shoots as far as the river. 
Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Israel is always the vine. The people are always this vine. They're, they're the grapes. They're the, they're the fruit. They're, uh, they are planted in, in a certain place. In, in, in this psalm, the question is, how come bad things are happening to our good vine? I, the same thing shows up in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. Maybe probably, probably I would say the most famous of Old Testament parables. And I'm, I'm quite confident that the early disciples would have understood or uh, they wouldn't have had any trouble at all recalling this, this particular imagery because this was so common. But So we hear uh, in Isaiah's language, here's what he'll say. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of, of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with, to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. <coughs> Justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Do you hear the imagery within that song, or within what, what Isaiah is saying there? Uh, Isaiah is saying, Israel is the vine, and the soil in which it is planted is this geographical place called Israel. And typically in the Old Testament, if you, if you think about it, they are in trouble, so it's always negative. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I am the vine. And I can almost see the, the disciples just sort of scratching their heads and, and as they walk down the road and you know, just trying to sort this thing out, what, what does he mean? I am, the, I am the vine when I thought that Israel was the vine. I thought that we were the vine. And, and so he says, no, I'm... I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. And God, he says, is the gardener. In fact, that's, if you look at this text in John chapter 15, it's a very clear statement. Look at that again. Look at John chapter 15, starting with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that your joy may be so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Well, you know what, there is is certainly no question at all about the the emphasis that we find in this text. This text is all about fruit bearing. Being a vine that in fact produces fruit. It's interesting, in fact, that there's this intensifying uh, of this fruit. In fact, he says that you will bear fruit, and if, uh, if the Father prunes you correctly, you will bear more fruit. In fact, then he says, if you look a little bit later in that text, he says that you will bear much fruit. And then, in fact, in verse number 16, he says, now go out and bear fruit that will last. You, you get what I'm saying? The intensifying is there's, there's bare fruit, there's bare much fruit, there's bare more fruit, there's bare fruit that will last. I mean, it just kind of gets more and more intense and it just kind of, it, it, it moves, uh, it, there's, this, there's this intensifying within the text itself. So fruit bearing must be something, I think, of sig- some significance here. The question I think that we have to ask ourselves is what kind? That's really the debate. What is, what's, what's he talking about here? What kind of fruit do you bear? And there's certainly been many. I remember um, you know, growing up in church, you know, and, and I, remember, I remember hearing sermons on this text uh, a number of different times, and, but I remember specifically listening to a sermon on this text and, 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 and uh, talking about, uh, he talked about Christians going out and witnessing to lost people and bearing much fruit and and I've thought about that, I've pondered that, I've wondered about that, and, you know, I just think that kind of seems odd. I have never seen a grape try to, cre- try to convert a peach. Have you? I mean, it just seems strange to me that, that he would say to grapes, now I want you to go out and turn tomatoes into grapes. See, the Bible does talk about that stuff, doesn't it? Certainly, it, I mean, the Great Commission comes and, and, and certainly uses that kind of language that we are to go 
and into all the world, and we're to preach the gospel to all nations. Colossians chapter 4, um, Colossians chapter 4 certainly says that, tells us that we ought to pray that God would open this door for the word and for his word, that we should speak his word as clearly as we can and whenever God opens up a door. And so it's not that there's nothing in scripture about us going out. In fact, that's a pretty common thing, I think, in scripture, the encouragement for Christians to share their faith. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think what he's talking about in this particular text, John chapter 15 is this, bearing fruit. Okay, well, I think that he's talking about, about what, what you and I are naturally. I, I, I mean, after all, what do grapevines produce? Right? They produce grapes. grapes. And so I think that what he's talking about is, is that we're supposed to produce fruit that will be what you would expect from a vine that's attached. In fact, it's in, in, this, in this text, I think it's pretty clear what the fruit is, don't you? There's this, there's this repetition here of some key ideas, and, and you can write some of these down if you want to do that, but he says in here, if you will remain in me, if you will remain attached to the vine, don't lose that thought, and don't lose that image there, but if you'll remain attached to the vine, he says, Number one, he says you're going to be obedient. That's not new news in this section, right? In the latter part of John's gospel, that's really pretty common. He says in verse 10 of this text, or in, 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 you know, he, he says that in verse 10 of, of, of this text. Or, or back in chapter 14, he, he talked about obedience. That obedience is a mark of what it means to be connected to Jesus. Obedience. And so it, 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 it wouldn't surprise us at all if in, in that development of our Christian experience, people who were Christian people, people who loved Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that they, those, we, we'd see them become obedient people, say, right, that's right. Okay? So that's, that just would seem to be so natural. In fact, I, I think that about that as, as a parent, and I realize that that's what parents hope to see in their children, don't they? I think that's what we, we do, and, 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 and those of you who have raised your children, I think, understand this, that you know, obedience is evidence that your children are actually bearing the fruit of being raised in your home. If, if your children are a reflection of you, then you would assume that they would do the things that you want them to do, because you would only want them to do that which is good. And they would do them because that's the right thing to do, and they would grow into the kinds of uh, kind of people that you want them to be. And so your children become obedient people. And you, certainly you would expect that of Christian people. You would expect to find Christian people in love with Jesus. Right? You wouldn't expect to find, you wouldn't expect to find them in love with Jesus if they're rejecting the things of God. When they hear, you know, if they were to hear something in Scripture, when they learn something about the about the Christian experience, you would expect them to say, "Oh, okay, yes, yes, I'm I'm in on that," because that's the fruit of relationship. I think there's a lot of fruit in this text. There's a lot of other fruit in here. For example, he says in verse number eleven, he says that you, that you and I, that we will be joyful. There's 
there will be a spirit of joy that is complete in us. I love hearing about that from, 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 the, from, the, from the scripture. Now, understand this now, though. There's some really terrible translations of this. That word, joy, does not mean happy. It doesn't. It might include happiness. I mean, don't misunderstand. But there are, there are some uses of this term that, that, that make it very clear that it isn't exclusively happy. I mean, so for example, this is the term that is used when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, that might seem like a contradiction in terms if we, if we understand that to be happy are those who mourn, right? <coughs> no, they're not happy. They are joyful. There's a spirit of joy that is present, the text says, in, in mourning people. Every time I, I attend a Christian funeral, I'm, I'm reminded of that, that, that there's joy. It's something that you don't see, I think, when, you, when, when non-Christian people are saying goodbye to a loved one. But you expect to see it when you meet people who are connected to Jesus. Well, in this text, you would find one of the fruit. So what are we saying? We've seen obedience. We've seen... Uh, joy is, is evidence of, of one of the fruit. Maybe, there, maybe another uh, one of the fruit, I think, would be love. You see that in verse number 12, in verse number 13, verse number 17. It, it shows up uh, back in the beginning of this conversation that he started back in the upper room in, in John chapter 13. He uh, says that you're supposed to love one another. In fact, he, he says that the mark of being one of my disciples is that you will love one another. And, and, and that people will know that you are my disciples because there's just an expression to each other that we love each other. In fact, one of the marks of the early church was this statement right here. Behold how they love one another. In fact, Jesus himself said, nobody can love more than to give up their life for somebody else. And that's exactly what, it, what he did as a demonstration, right, of his love for us. He gave up his life for us. And in very tangible ways, I, well, I, I watch people around here who give up their life for other people here at New Life. I mean, not, not necessarily physically. Not like they're, they die for somebody else. But they give up major pieces of their life for other people. And it, it's just, a, I think, a testimony of what it means to bear fruit. Remember, that's what this is about, bearing fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? Uh, we certainly, certainly understand that this here also might be, this fruit-bearing stuff is, is uh, about the, whole, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? We remember what that is. We did a sermon series on that. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and, uh, gentleness, and self-control, right? The kinds of things of which Paul says that there is no law. Uh, those are the kinds of things that you would expect to see growing on the vine of a Christian, right? Those kinds of attitudes, those types of, of characteristics. Well, that kind of fruit produces something else, I think, in the life of a believer. I think that, for example, it, it should produce prayerfulness. Uh, I don't know if you, did you, did you notice that in this text? We it's shown up in the last three weeks in the text that we've been looking at, this, this idea of prayerfulness. Uh, verse number 7, verse number 16 in this text, you ask what you will, and my God will do it for you, right? 
ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. That key part of that phrase, we talked about it in the Bible school again this morning, in my name. Ask whatever you wish, in my name. And, and that is, and, and here I think is the key to that, it, it is because we are so tightly connected to Jesus that we don't know what to ask for outside of what he wants. Right? Can I say that again? We are so tightly connected to Jesus that we don't know what to ask for outside of what he wants. And so whatever we ask for in his name is going to be something that we that would honor him. And, and, and so he's going to give it to us. And if one of the things that we ask for is the fruit of, of his life in our life, he's going to let that grow naturally in us. I think that one of the marks of fruitfulness is a prayerful life. I, I guess I also think that one of the marks of fruitfulness is, is this whole issue of friendship. Um, I, I'm, I'm struck when I, when I read this uh, again this, this week, I, I'm struck by this. He says it specifically there. He says, you were not chosen, or, or we were not, uh, we're not chosen by God, he says, but God chooses us, right? Not merely to be his servants, but to be his friends. God chooses us. I think that puts us in pretty good company, doesn't it? You think about that, there are not many people who have been called the friends of God, right? There's only two in Scripture, right? We know that, right? Moses and Abraham. And then he looks at us and he says, oh, by the way, I call you friend. That means that we're in good company. When Jesus looks at you, when he looks at me, he says, I want you to know that you are my friend. We have just walked into the company of two of the greatest characters in all of biblical history. You and I are among the elite who have the privilege of being called a friend of God. And you know what that means? It just means that I'm his friend. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I'm his friend. That's not, not because of my choice, but because of his. He said, we're friends. Well, that really still doesn't solve my problem because it still leaves me with a question, and that is, what's this whole thing about fruitfulness, and how in the world did I, do I become fruitful? I really think that the answer is very, very clear in this text. Did, I don't know if you heard it or not. Did you hear it? I've said it a couple times. We read it, and it's, well, actually, it just keeps coming back and again. In fact, it, it occurs 11 times within this text, uh, 11 times in 17 verses. And anything that shows up that often is probably pretty significant. We ought to sit up and take notice. It's, it's pretty significant simply by virtue of repetition. You know what I'm talking about? Did you hear it? I'll just highlight it for you by, just for, for you once more, okay? You got your Bibles open? Take a look at verse 4. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. You cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. Or how about verse 5? If a man remains in me, and I remain in him, he will bear much fruit. 
Well, how about verse 6? Anyone that does not remain in me is like a branch that withers. Verse 7, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Verse 9, remain in my love. Verse 10, you will remain in my love. Verse 10, again, my Father's commands and remain in, right? Eleven times he talks about remaining in him. It's a sense of connectedness. See, the key to fruitfulness is faithfulness. The key to being able to bear the fruit of Jesus is being faithfully connected to Him. If Christ is to be seen in us, then we must be found in Him. See, there's an assumption in this text. Make no mistake about it. There's an assumption here. Verse number 3 says that you have been cleansed by the Word. You hear the assumption there? You're already clean. That's the assumption. In fact, it's the very same word that he used in the verse ahead of that that talks about being pruned. In fact, he looks at our life and he says, because you are in me and I am in you, and because fruit bearing is part of our experience together, I'm just going to come alongside and, and I'm going to work on your life and I'm going to cut off some of the stuff that you shouldn't have. I'm going to prune those branches so that they will produce more fruit. And we can expect that in our life, right? We can expect from time to time that God is going to come along and He is going to shape us and He is going to mold us and He is, he is going to make us into what... Because He assumes that we are clean. He assumes that we are connected. But what He does not assume in this text is that we will remain in Him. And so 11 times he encourages us to remain connected. And I find myself wondering, well, how in the world do you do that? How do you, how do you remain connected? There's no formula here. There's nothing that spells out how clearly, how, uh, you know, how, how to do that. I, I, understand, I understand how to get in him. I understand how to get him in me. I mean, the scripture seems very clear about that. You do these things and Christ comes into your life. But how do you stay in Him? How do you remain in Him? The word literally means to abide in Him, to be connected to Him, to, to stay with. How do you remain in Him? Frankly, that's pretty mystical stuff, if you ask me. I mean, it's kind of strange. It, it's, uh, I, 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 because there's just no surefire way of saying, you know, well, for you, right, for you guys, for me, this is what you need to do in order to remain in Him. I see it, for example, when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. I'm not saying that there's anything magical about that meal, but I am saying there's something mystical about that meal. That we come here, we enter into His presence, <laughs> and literally we take the, the two emblems, uh, the, the bread and the, and, the, and, the, and the cup, emblems that remind us of his body and his blood, and somehow that connects us to him. We participate the, the languages with him. And so Sunday after Sunday, we have the opportunity to remain in him, to be connected. I see it when we pray. There's something about that connection between us and, and him, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are His children. His spirit says things that we don't know how to say, right? 
and there's this mystical union. I think it happens when we start to read scripture together. When we pour ourselves into the Bible and we get the Bible poured into us because his words then become a part of us and then we think things, we begin to think like him and, and sound like him and we act like him. There's this connection when we read scripture and I also think it happens when we worship. When we come into his presence and we pour ourselves out to him and, and, and we stand and we, some, you know, maybe, maybe we're called to or feel the, the need to kneel or, or whatever we need to do, but always when we come into his presence in this place, it's really not the music. It's not the words. It's really about connecting with Jesus himself to remain in him. But see, I think that that is the power of this text here, for us to stay connected, to do what we have to do, whatever that happens to be, so that we remain in Him. So that you walk with Him every single day, constantly, always in Him. I am the true vine, He says. You stay connected to me and we'll bear fruit. Not just a little. Not even just a little bit more, but a lot. And when the world sees that fruit, then they're going to want to know where it came from. And they're going to want to get connected like you are because they will encounter Jesus, our friend, when they see you, when they see me, and they'll want that. So the encouragement, I think, within this text is pretty simple, isn't it? Remain in Him. Stay in Him. Be constantly with Him. I'm reminded this morning of a song 